Hello, I'm Ray Wright, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared and host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss what metrics, KPIs, and benchmarks they use to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. Now, on to today's show. Today, we are joined by Will Cordes, founder and CEO of KPI Sense. Welcome to the show, Will. Yeah, great to be here. So to, on today's podcast, we'll be covering three primary topics. First, looking at overall SaaS KPI trends and impacts over the past six months, kind of post-COVID hit. Number two, we'll talk about the need for consistency and even possible standardization of SaaS KPIs. And number three, how to determine which SaaS KPIs are most important and appropriate for your SaaS company. Will, before we start today, please introduce yourself and KPI Sense to our listeners. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate the, uh, the, the high-level intro and great to meet everybody and, and talk further here. Always, always good to talk SaaS KPIs and metrics. Uh, so my name is Will Cordes, founder and CEO of KPI Sense, and my company, KPI Sense, is uh, a finance-as-a-service business for SaaS companies. You know, basically, what we do is uh, we provide financial modeling, KPI dashboard, and analytics uh, solutions, and combine tech-enabled automation with vertical market expertise than SaaS to provide a very cost-efficient, uh, you know, finance and strategic finance and FP&A type of resource uh, to help support companies as they continue to scale. So regardless of if you're a founder with no finance team or uh, a large late-stage SaaS business with a full finance team, we work with, with companies in all sorts of different capacities and uh, are always happy to chat if you're interested in talking more on the, on the SaaS front. But yeah, that's it for my end. Great. Thanks, Will. Well, with your portfolio of customers, I'm sure you've seen multiple impacts of COVID over the last six months on KPIs and financial performance. In our latest research that we're going to be publishing in about a week, we looked at first half 2020 KPIs for B2B SaaS, and we found that number one, new ARR growth is down over 50% from what they saw in first half 19 Overall company growth is also down about 50% versus the first half plan. And the cost of acquiring each new dollar of ARR as measured by the CAC ratio is increased by over 20%. So Will, if you look at your portfolio of customers, what KPIs have you seen most impacted over the last six months for your SaaS customers? Yeah, so Ray, I think you nailed one of them. One of the biggest ones is new bookings. And I think it really depends. There's companies that have faced significant headwinds and we've even seen some that have, have, have realized significant tailwinds and have actually grown as a result of kind of the COVID crisis. I'd say that the, the metrics that we see that have been most impacted though would be day sales outstanding, which really is a measure of how quickly you're turning over your inventory or, or kind of outstanding invoices in, in kind of SaaS terminology and kind of monetizing those and monetizing your AR. New bookings, which would obviously be kind of our, our ACB, ACB-based bookings for new business. We've seen largely across the board declines in, in where a lot of folks have initi initially planned for the year to be out of the gates, kind of in, al in alignment with your data. And then cash burn is something where I think a lot of people have been much more focused on that, given the, the lack of new bookings and trying to focus on uh, drawing back expenses, other areas of concern. But I, again, my, my biggest point of feedback or, or thought there is really to monitor day sales outstanding. If you're assuming that you're converting AR every 25 or 30 days, given, given kind of the circumstances, what we're seeing across our portfolio of companies is a lot of people are, uh, a lot of clients and their end customers 
are paying a lot slower than they were before this. So I would definitely not bank on receiving uh, and collecting on AR maybe as fast as you were prior to the crisis. Well, if you see day sales outstanding increasing and cash burn becoming a concern, are you seeing a changing in your recommendation of how much cash on hand from, is it 12 months, is it 18 months, is it 24 months? Do you have a kind of benchmark threshold of what you're recommending? Yeah, I mean, it really depends, right? So we work with companies that are venture backed uh, and may have large cash burns on a monthly basis. We have bootstrap businesses that are profitable. It really depends per, per your business and how you're thinking about growth. I do definitely, you know, definitely would recommend to err towards the side of conservatism and, and definitely don't assume that you're going to hit maybe the same growth oriented uh, forecast that you may have set over this year. So one thing that we think about to really kind of attack all that is, is really to try and be dynamic and, and, and try to focus on where data is and how things are changing and really kind of look at month's performances, months, months over month versus trying to kind of strap on and, and really focus on plans that may have been set before all this started. So I definitely think it, it makes sense. You do have the opportunity to fundraise. It may be worth putting more cash on the sidelines to prepare for more volatility or uncertainty, but it's hard to say. You know, I think it's one of those things where definitely doesn't hurt to be conservative. And obviously, if you outperform, all the better. Yeah, we did some research with Sandhill Group and Assess CFO back in the May timeframe. And we were seeing that on average, and of course, there's no one size fits all, 18 months of cash for the venture back companies was kind of a minimum threshold with a lot of in series B, series C firms or VCs were trying to get them to 24 months. But the other thing we've noticed is the drastic change in new customer acquisition in the March through May timeframe, we're starting to see some pickup in the July through August timeframe. How do you recommend or what advice are you giving your clients for FY 2021 planning? Because right now they're thinking about what budgets do I have? Do I invest? Do I pull back? What are you recommending? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, one of the things that we focus on with our clients is, is really around scenario analysis. And again, this concept of dynamic planning. For us, the, the big focus is on uh, planning for that what if scenario and really trying to understand how things are changing. I think you're going to continue to see trends move all across the board over the next six to 12 months. It's hard to really pin that down, but making sure you're well prepared, regardless of which direction we head in, I think is the real critical part. I think where people can get in trouble is assuming that this rebound is, is going to get all the way back to normal and things are going to be just like they were at the beginning of 2020 before all this started. And I don't know if that's the case. It's hard to say for sure or any certainty. So for us, we like to think about um, kind of the glass half full scenario and, and the glass half empty scenario. So making sure we're on type, top, top of both of those. But yeah, I, I definitely have seen some of the trends you're mentioning. I think there was a lot of uh, holding off on the sidelines on, on additional spend in the second quarter. I, I, I have also seen some pickup here in the third quarter across our, our businesses. But again, it's, it's a dangerous assumption to just assume that's going to continue to, to return to full normalcy. So we like to, again, assume a little bit more of a, a conservative view on forecasting. And Obviously, if, if data continues to improve, we're, we're definitely going to continue to kind of throttle that upwards. But it's one of those things where it's kind of a, a, a plain scene. It's very situation dependent. Yeah, one of the things with our KPI benchmarking index we try to do is continuously update what our benchmarks are against certain industry standard KPIs like CAC ratio or gross dollar retention rate. And we've seen some drastic changes from Q2 through what we're seeing right now in Q3. But let me talk about CAC ratio a little bit more because... In our client base, they're primarily high growth 
30% and greater growth rates based upon ARR size. And the efficiency of gathering each new dollar of ARR, whether it's from new name customers or even existing customers expansion, really has been challenged over the last three months. What are you right now recommending as far as how important CAC ratio is to monitor regarding when they should or should not invest more in customer acquisition? Or do you use things like the magic number? What's your kind of platform for recommending when to put more investment into growth? Yeah, so it's a great question. I've got a couple of thoughts here. The, the first point is to be honest to yourself as a business when you're calculating CAC. I think we see a lot of companies that don't have a functional PL, they're not properly allocating headcount costs to sales and marketing. They may be putting stuff in GNA that ultimately should sit in sales and marketing. And you know, my feedback there is you're ultimately only going to be lying to yourself uh, and kind of putting more of this garbage in, garbage out framework in to, to analyze the cost of acquiring a new customer. You know, obviously you want to optimize that that ratio for investors or board members, whoever, but if you're using it to kind of evaluate and try to drive forward better decision making within the business, I think it's really important that you're honest around what those costs really look like. So that's one thing that we focus on with a lot of our clients. You know, secondly, I think one of the reasons and one of the things that we recommend to try and solve that is really identifying and focusing on kind of the less cost efficient acquisition channels, which means you really have to have a really good understanding of your top of funnel metrics, how much you're paying to acquire a new customer per each channel and kind of where you're spending those dollars uh, and really focus on, on cutting down or even removing some of those less efficient channels for now until there's, again, more of a return to normalcy. And then in terms of other metrics that we use to kind of analyze and look at this, another good proxy for this is really months to recover CAC. If your new, new business bookings are being negatively impacted in 2020, you'll likely see an increase in months to recover CAC unless you're able to reduce that through kind of less sales and marketing expenditure. But understand your payback period for each type of sales and marketing spend area outside of just paid acquisition on the marketing side, it's going to be a lot easier to manage that and drive more efficiency from both CAC and ones to recover CAC moving forward. Interesting that you mentioned about the CAC payback period because we're totally aligned on that. The other KPI that we are recommending, especially to companies that are growing really fast, greater than 50%, is look at your customer lifetime value to CAC ratio because that also can be very telling because if your gross or net dollar retention is performing really well, you may want to invest even more and not worry so much about your CAC ratio. So what do you think about customer lifetime value to CAC as a good KPI proxy? I couldn't agree more. That's one of our core metrics we track. Uh, you know, the metrics we track on the customer and economic side, customer lifetime value, CAC, and then LTV to CAC, wants to recover CAC and magic number. I mean, there's definitely opportunities to use and look at rule of 40 as well, although I think that can be somewhat business dependent. But those are kind of the core five metrics we look at for customer unit economics, uh, just because we think it's a good parameter parameter of, of kind of where these businesses are heading and what performance looks like. You know, the one thing I would say is we don't try to overweight any one particular metric. I think it's important to think about everything as a whole to really understand that story. Uh, but we do think all of those metrics together can tell a really interesting story about what a business has done and where they're heading and ideally trying to figure out how we can get more efficiency out of sales and marketing moving forward. Totally agree. When we go out and do our KPI assessments, we've done about 20 different companies this year. We find some organizations are over indexing on a single um, KPI, especially when they are looking at expense controls and operational efficiency in the March through June timeframe. You know, CAC ratio was one of those things. We kind of pulled back and said, let's really look at other things like what's going on with your net dollar retention, CAC, payback, CLCV to CAC, and then let's make the decision holistically. However, 
the one thing that I found since we started doing these KPI assessments, Will, is the inconsistency of the way organizations calculate the different KPIs. An example, net dollar retention. Number one, even in publicly traded companies, I think I saw a post the other day that of 35 different publicly traded companies or at least seven different naming conventions, let alone calculations. So you mentioned on one of those posts that you think there's a need for the industry to have more standardized KPI definitions and calculation. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you see that in your customer base? Yeah, no, and absolutely. Yeah, it was a, uh, I believe it was an open view post uh, by Sean Fanning, uh, who leads corporate development over there. He's, he's a, a great thought leader in the space. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's one thing that really frustrates me. We get the question all the time, you know, how do you think about net revenue retention? How do you think about churn? What's a good best in class standard or how do we kind of measure to? The challenge is, is that there's not a good, somebody carrying kind of the torch forward in terms of how it's defined, you know, because it's non-GAAP. I think a lot of publicly traded SaaS companies have used that to their advantage to find a way to put kind of more, I'd say, creative, uh, creative accounting or creative finance type of structures or frameworks around showing really high net negative revenue retention numbers that are over 100% versus trying to show what's, what's an actual indicator of the business. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's me, I think, trying to come up with a, a true standard or, or kind of a, 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 a true view of what churn looks like, whether that's on a cohort basis, whether you're calculating that as a, a sum of monthly churn across the last 12 months, whether you're calculating that as a sum of your effective you know, net churn across uh, the last 12 months at a midpoint convention. I don't care what you use. I think from my perspective, if, if there was just something to kind of align everybody there, it'd be a lot easier to set standards and, and kind of practices. But for now, what we do for the most part is try to get better directional feedback. Like, hey, you're an SMB SaaS business, right? you're going to have more churn than your atypical or sorry, your typical enterprise SaaS business. So from that perspective, I think, again, it's, it's more important to think about it from a, a directional standpoint, but there's definitely a huge opportunity, I think, to, to drive further alignment on that front moving forward. Yeah. When I saw the dialogue, I was going to weigh in because very different world. We used to have to create standard setting bodies, even in non-public companies to come up with industry standards. We did that in the world of EDI. We came up with industry standards, setting committees that the largest players in industry would come together and have common definitions. Do you even think there's an incentive or a motivation for the largest publicly traded SaaS companies to come together and try to standardize on one example, net dollar retention calculation? I'd be nice. Yeah, I'd love it. I mean, part of it, I think is just that this convention of, of, of kind of the SEC and, and FINRA and how earnings kind of work today there's not really an incentive to share or there's not a forced need to share non-GAAP information. So again, I think that because of that, there's not really, there's more of a disincentive for people to do that than not. Um, so I think it's more challenging than, uh, than, than, than just that. I mean, obviously there needs to be buy-in across the board, but obviously I think to me, if it's going to happen, it probably needs to happen from more of a regulatory perspective and push to share that data. And I, I think as SAS continues to grow, you're going to see a more of a push for that, you know, more publicly. I mean, a great example, I think another open view post I, we were talking about, uh, people are commenting about uh, Zoom's uh, investor earnings and how much cash flow they're generating off of 200 million of, of quarterly revenue or something along those lines. And really it's, it's a matter of the bookings, you know, inflow and, and how much cash is coming in from annual prepayments. So it's it just, I think people aren't used to looking at SaaS businesses or understanding how 
some of those kind of levers and, and triggers work. But I really do think that there needs to be uh, a better framework and structure for SaaS companies to record earnings. So, you know, obviously to give folks that are more in an analysis or from an investor perspective, better data to, to make more informed decisions. I totally agree. You mentioned Sean at OpenView. I just hosted Kyle, one of his colleagues at OpenView on the podcast earlier today. And we were talking about product-led growth companies. And we all know companies like that. Zoom, I think, is a good poster child. Slack, Twilio, et cetera. But what was amazing, Will, was the net dollar retention rates of most of these product-led growth companies are in the 140 to 160%, where in private SaaS companies using a sales-led model, I'm seeing more of a 100 to 103% net dollar retention rates on average. Do you have any product-led growth companies in your customer base? And do you see similar net dollar retention multiples? I do. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a mix. I mean, I would say that, it, that part of it's based on the pricing model. I mean, there has to definitely be a usage or, or a need to increase number of licenses per, per business. And that absolutely works for a number of product-led growth companies where there's kind of a good framework and structure for that. Uh, but there are other companies that I think have more of a uh, you know, fairly kind of uh, standardized pricing model where it's probably a little bit harder to achieve those numbers. You know, you're always going to have uh, some impact from, from, from gross revenue churn. Um, so you obviously have to have a lot of expansionary, uh, you know, revenue opportunities baked into that sales process. And even if you're, you're product led, even if it's self-service, you still have to have the right structure to, to kind of encapsulate that. So I, I definitely think that, that, that that's a good, it's something good to strive for, but I don't think, you know, to be fair to, the companies that may have some lower ratios, part of that may be driven based on their pricing model and their, their maybe lack of ability to expand existing customers just because there's not a real natural or intuitive need for them to expand at this point in time. But it's not to say they can't do it moving forward. So definitely good things to think about as, as folks are trying to think about how they can scale and grow their existing you know, revenue base. Got it. Well, like a lot of very successful SaaS companies, I'm going to pivot a little bit right now. And at RevOps Squared, we looked at how do people use those enterprise value creating KPIs, things like rule of 40, which is um, the growth rate plus the free cash flow as a percentage, the gross dollar, net dollar retention, the CAC payback period, customer lifetime value and gross margin. But what we found, Will, was a lot of SaaS companies, especially those under 50 million ARR, weren't aligning second level operating KPIs that the head of marketing or head of sales or head of R&D had that had a causal relationship to those enterprise valuating valuation creating KPIs. So with your customers, do you ever get involved in how to establish metrics, objectives, or KPIs for those second level organizations that directly impact the most important corporate level KPIs? Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, for us, I think the, the biggest thing that we stress is data quality, right? So getting good quality data, putting good rules in place to ingest and analyze the data and making sure that whatever we've established is something scalable that we can continue to review and not have any concerns about whether the data is consistent or not. And honestly, and shockingly, that's probably a much bigger step for a lot of companies than, than, than you'd think. But that's one of the first things that we try and cross but as you build that framework and that baseline and you have the right structure to analyze, say those more operational financial KPIs, like the customer and economics you have in your benchmark, it's a lot easier to then establish and look at those second level operating KPIs, a lot of which will have 
impacts or, or be indirectly correlated with some of those higher level KPIs. So to me, I always recommend building kind of a good baseline and a good a base of, of understanding from a dashboard view before you really dive into the weeds on, on kind of the second next level stuff, because it's going to be a lot more easier to do that granular analysis if you've got the right framework at the top level with your higher level KPIs. Makes total sense. I was talking to the SaaS CFO, Ben Murray, the other day on a podcast, and he was mentioning that one of the things in kind of sub 5 million, but mostly sub 2.5 million AR SaaS companies, just getting the financial infrastructure so they can do appropriate bookings and revenue recognition. Do you find the same challenge in your customer base, just getting the basic financial infrastructure set up is a major challenge for a lot of these young, younger companies? Yeah, and I, and I know Ben well. We've had a number of, of conversations, great guy, uh, and I couldn't agree more. Really, the challenge that SaaS companies have is they don't really have a uh, earlier or even growth stage ERP or financial statement solution that's really tooled or geared towards SaaS companies. So what we found is a lot of people, most of our customers are using QuickBooks in some capacity or something similar. Uh, there's a lot of manual work that goes into putting the right entries in place to recognize deferred revenue properly, to recognize and analyze those bookings. So part of what we do is try to separate that and look at uh, transactional level data you know, from the in, on the invoice side and look at financial statement data, bring that and ingest that data in kind of a way that's going to be meaningful, and then build the infrastructure once we've gathered and, and kind of brought all that data in. The challenge is that's different for every company. Some people are using subscription management tools. Some people are doing everything in QuickBooks or something similar. Some people have moved on to an ERP and may use a number of tools in different buckets. So it really depends on, on the given customer. But for us, we, we definitely see uh, a, lot of, a lot of challenges that companies have when they're trying to really analyze that data because it's just not that intuitive out of the gates, especially with um, kind of a standard out-of-the-box setup in QuickBooks and, and other like-minded tools. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a big trend going on with customer data platforms right now, correct? Trying to align and normalize data from your marketing automation, your Salesforce automation, your customer success automation, all the different tools. I see the same challenge with a lot of the SaaS KPIs. You know, some of the information is coming from your general ledger, some of the information is coming from Salesforce, some of the information is coming from your customer success platform for gross dollar, net dollar retention. Do you see an opportunity out there in the marketplace for kind of a, I don't know, financial data platform for SaaS KPIs and financial reporting like we're seeing with CDP, customer data platforms? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's absolutely an opportunity. I think it's, it's something that we're trying to move somewhat in that direction. I think as we gather it and look at additional data points, the more that we can bring and, and kind of cleanse that data, uh, it makes it easier to analyze, especially coming from different data sources and different perspectives there. So absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's something that we definitely want to help enable and drive further efficiency from ourselves. Yeah, there's absolutely a need for uh, as an easier, more efficient ways to analyze this type of data at the end of the day. And one of the reasons I asked that, you know, another big hot topic right now is the implementation of a revenue operations function. And a lot of people are defining revenue operations as to ensure you have tight alignment of every touch point with the customer experience across marketing, sales, and customer success. But far too often, Will, I'm finding financial operations, financial planning and analysis isn't part of the definition of revenue operations. Do you think that's a miss? It's hard to say, right? I mean, I think FP&A, the, the, the people that are going to get value out of that typically are, are kind of the senior finance team and the management team. Um, but I would agree in the sense that I think they definitely have to be uh, coordinated and, and collaborate accordingly. I, I don't think they can operate 
in their own lanes. So there definitely has to be uh, some, some crossover there, I think, to ensure good data consistency and make sure everybody's on the same page. But it gets back to this concept of data quality and metadata, right? If you set the right terms and the right structure and process, uh, it allows you to analyze this stuff in a much more efficient way. So absolutely, I definitely think that there's, a, there's, there's room for improvement there. And they definitely need to be, if not on the same team, uh, they need to be tied pretty closely in the work that they're doing. Uh, and I think that there's more organizations that are, that are bringing more of that collaborative mindset. But in a lot of cases, it's easier said than done. Totally agreed. So one last question here before we wrap up today's show, and that is benchmarking. Of course, that was why RevOps Squared was formed, was to be able to capture across thousands and thousands of companies all their SaaS KPIs, and then allow an organization to look at similar-like companies via cohort based upon revenue size, distribution model, average contract value, et cetera. So, Will, what do you think is the importance of benchmarking similar-like companies for a SaaS company, for whether it's improving planning and scenario analysis, or just to have more of your comparisons, not internally historical trends, but against your real competition, and that is other like companies? Yeah, I think it's awesome. You know, obviously, we, we would love to have the ability to dive in and compare more of that data dynamically, especially if you're able to get down into sub-segmentation and other areas that are uh, specific to a, to a given customer base. To me, that's extremely valuable and interesting. So the more transparency and more ability to share that information, it's good for everybody at the end of the day. So absolutely, I think that's a, that's a fantastic type of, of opportunity there. And yeah, we'd love to dive into that data more once we have the opportunity to do so. Well, do you find companies really using benchmark data to make decisions or is it more of, I'm directionally, I'm doing okay. Now I'm going to get back into my internal metrics and that's how I'm going to drive decisions. I'd say more of the latter. I think they're largely kind of thinking about it directionally to see where they stack up. But I think part of it is because most benchmarking data that these companies are used to looking at are very generalized. There's not a lot of, of really detailed data points and there's a lot of, of room for interpretation. A lot of these indexes, they may have include B2C and B2B data. They may include very large enterprise and mixed with SMB. You know, some will, will delineate and break that out, but there's just a lot of different profiles and things that can kind of tr- drastically change those figures. So for, 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 for me, we typically also advise to think about a direction, but I think the more transparency and the more data points that you can bring in that are consistent, the more value you can kind of uh, generate from, from true benchmark analysis. And from your lips to God's ears, that's kind of what we believe that we want to see the market get to being able to use solid benchmark data to make better data-driven metrics-informed decisions. So, Will, before we wrap up today, any last thoughts or advice you'd like to give to our audience? No, yeah. I mean, again, I, trying to, like I said, I, I, I continue to harp on data quality and, and trying to build and analyze your, your data in an efficient way. But yeah, if you have any questions or, or thoughts on that and yeah, feel free to reach out. We're always always open to talk shop on, on KPIs and, and SaaS metrics and things along those lines. So always open to, to continue the discussion on that front. Well, Will, thank you so much for investing 30 minutes of your time to meet with a fellow KPI and data junkie. And we really appreciate you being on this episode of the Metrics at Major at Podcast. Have a good day now. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.